0: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games.
1: Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: Ch-ch-chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give. And there's no regular commitment.
0: Just click the link in the show description to support now. you <music>
1: Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Shifting the Paradigm. I'm Christina Gomez, your hostess for this next hour of adventure and UFO shenanigans, where we look and think outside of the proverbial box, jump down rabbit holes, and where the red pill is actually a red tic-tac. Hi to everyone in the live chat today, Jamie, Gray Chorl, r and r spaghetti lee how's everyone doing thank you so much for the super chat it says christina gomez i never found out if you're a silky i don't even know what is that a mermaid oh dude mermaids are awesome i'm not gonna lie I like mermaids. <laughs> Today's guest, Micah Hanks, is no stranger to shifting the paradigm as he was last with us in July. With more than a decade in podcasting, travel, writing, and research, and the study of history and science. Micah Hanks has more than just a passion for knowledge. He is a longtime advocate for scientific research into UAPs. He's an affiliate member of the scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, and has other interests, including space studies, zoological mysteries, and unusual phenomena in nature. A hopeful skeptic, he advocates a critically minded approach to the study of these subjects. With all that being said, let's bring in our friend, Micah Hanks. Hey, Micah.
0: <laughs> How are you, Christina?
1: Uh, you know, I love having you on. It's, it's awesome that you can be here again today.
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, especially since I am a globetrotter at the moment, and I don't mean basketball. I've been all over the place. South America, this uh, latest stretch, and it's been beautiful. Uh, in fact, specifically, I've got to tell you about Chapada dos Villaderos, where I was, this beautiful national park. And I loved everything except for the tremendous wildfires that were actually you know, creeping up on us as we were trying to hike our way down into these ravines and find these waterfalls and things. But... You would be interested to know, Christina, that there are um, UFO sightings galore there around Chapada. And in Alto Parizu, where we were staying, the little town, all the uh, little town, you know, shops and things on either side of the main street are decked out with alienígenas, aliens. Uh, One little shop was called Area 51. There are restaurants. There was even a hotel that has a great big flying saucer out front. So I felt right at home.
1: (laughs) Did you visit all those places?
0: I went to as many as I possibly could. And, you know, interestingly, we may have had a sighting of something uh, on our way in. I was traveling with my uh, friends Fernanda and Rafaela, and as we were coming in that night, we had flown into Brasilia, the capital city, and we had to drive about three hours out, way out into the country. I mean, you know you're in the country no matter what country you're in, when as you're driving along in your rented car, you're seeing people pass you on the road on horseback. OK, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. But indeed, um, we saw off in the distance on this beautiful, clear night. We could see Jupiter over here. Uh, we could see, I believe, Venus behind us as well. Uh, and of course, just an abundance of stars. But then there's a little blue moving light and a blue light, of course, always will catch your eye if you're an avid nighttime sky watcher, because you don't see that typically on aircraft. And about the time I spotted this, Jaffaella in the front seat had seen this before I did. But I i am watching this little light just, you blank out and disappear. Now, it could have been a satellite. I've seen a lot of those over the years. I don't know. It it looked peculiar. So I'll suspend my judgment, but it was interesting.
1: Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, Brazil is such a beautiful country. My mom used to tell me stories about how when she used to visit just end of the food, don't even get me started.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Comida Comida is, uh, you know, what they call their traditional food there. And this usually consists of, you know, some kind of meat, but also black beans, rice, farafa, which is a wonderful little grain. They also serve a lot of, um, things along, you know, that would be unfamiliar to, uh, most in North America and other parts of the world. You'll see a lot of, um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, yucca and and, and and bananas and, and and things served in interesting ways. A lot of different kind of regional dishes that I really enjoyed. Didn't have anything down there uh, that I didn't like. I'm definitely going back. You should come along next time. Let's jump in the TARDIS and go, OK?
1: Let's go. Let's go. I mean, I'm always down to eat some plantains, some grilled plantains and fried yucca. Oh. Yeah. Micah, don't. Don't. Okay. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. Don't,
1: don't open that rabbit hole. But, you know, you, you've been so busy since last time we spoke. And aside from your international travels, can you update us at, you know, what you've been doing with research projects when it comes to UFOs and cryptids?
0: Well, you know, as far as UFOs, because I know we're going to speak about the latter. Uh... Quite a bit tonight. So we'll start with UFOs and UAP. It's an ongoing interest I've had for more than a decade in the history of this phenomenon and trying to document that. And also uh, with an aim uh, toward trying to educate people who are fairly new to the subject uh, about its provenance. I think this is vitally important because, as we have seen with the recent report that was issued to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence back in June, they talk about, for instance, the U.S. Air Force's relatively recent. History of involvement with the phenomenon. Of course, they're talking about updated procedures for documenting UAP, and these new reporting mechanisms were first instituted actually by the US Navy, I believe in 2019. The Air Force picked that up the following year and late in that year. So, really, again, indeed in terms of recent history the air force does have limited involvement we go of course back to the 1950s and 60s and we see project blue book and we have the longest systematic study ever ever carried out by a branch of the military or anyone in government for that matter and so i'm certain that those who are currently heading the navy's uap task force and again if it ends up being approved this ufo study organization or entity that Congress has now called for, which presumably will replace the UAP task force if it comes to fruition. I'm sure they know about the history of the phenomenon, but what concerns me is that they aren't addressing that in the recent dialogue and the reports and the documentation. Many seem to be leading with the presumption that, well, we're going to look at recent reports, you know, going back maybe to 2004, but especially just the last couple of years. And therefore, if there's a technology, well, somebody must have made it here on earth unusual technologies, very unconventional aerial objects have been observed at least since the 1940s. But again, there's a good history going even further back than that. And my contention would be that we need to look at that history and we need need to understand the broader picture of what UAP might represent, because it may be easier to say Russia or China today. But if similar objects with uncanny capabilities were being seen in the 1950s or the 1940s or even the 30s or the 20s, you know, it's much difficult much more difficult, I should say, to, uh, you know, attribute that to a foreign power or even to U.S. technology. So, again, understanding the history is really, in my opinion, one of the ways that we define what this phenomena is and therefore how we should study it and, you know, what we might expect about uh, future studies.
1: And what about any research projects when it comes to cryptids?
0: Well, you know, the term cryptid, for anyone who's unfamiliar with that, uh, has to do with animals, unrecognized by science, but which nonetheless there have accumulated enough, you know, anecdotal reports, you know, eyewitness uh, sightings uh, that seem to support the existence of some of these creatures. Uh, You know, cryptozoology would be the broader, you know, term for this kind of study. And although, you know, most academicians would label that a pseudoscience, uh, my contention is that every year new animals are being discovered and they aren't you know, mythic type creatures, dragons or things resembling what we'll discuss a good bit today, Sasquatch, but they are nonetheless new discoveries. And I feel that, you know, our earth is probably, uh, keeping tucked away in the shadows or perhaps beneath the ocean depths, a lot of secrets. Some of that extends to UAP too. But as far as, you know, my own interest in that topic and things I've been involved with in recent years, I actually joined, uh, one of the most, uh, uh, bright and well-spoken scholars on this subject. Matt Pruitt, my friend of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, he and I and a group of other researchers actually went to Georgia. Skeptical though I am about this, but we went. We spent several days hiking up into the mountains of, uh, you know, northern Georgia, um, and conducting nighttime reconnaissance and and you know work in a in a large. A wilderness area where many people including matt he has never seen anything but he has heard unusual vocalizations that he couldn't identify a lot of people in that region have uh, encountered you know what they claim are human-like creatures that they couldn't identify uh and you know that's long been an interest of matt pruitt certainly of mine as well skeptical though i am about the possibility that there are creatures running around down here in the north georgia mountains that mm-hmm. resemble sasquatch um i am in I'm very interested in a lot of these reports. And I think the worst thing that you can do if you're truly of a scientific inclination is to dismiss them out of hand without doing your own investigation and actually trying to gather data from those who say that they've had those experiences. So we did. We went down there. We spent uh, several days uh, in an area that Matt spent years working. We didn't hear or see anything, but it was um, definitely an interesting experience. Didn't encounter a very large rattlesnake. Not going to (laughs) lie.
1: I mean, snakes are kind of scary, especially in the wild.
0: I'd be more concerned about rattlesnakes like that than uh, I would the uh, purported relict hominoids uh, that we were in search of. And we can talk about that term a little later. But I'll also say this, you know, the great thing about rattlesnakes, I know this sounds crazy, but unlike other poisonous snakes, they let you know when they're nearby. And they're, they're intentionally trying to keep you away and let you know that they're there so that they don't get stepped on and so that you don't get bitten. So, you know, and this guy, fortunately, I saw Matt walking right next to me and all of a sudden he does this unique dance move, you know, kind of spins and turns with one leg in the air. And, uh, yeah, he was, we were all fortunately wearing, you know, protection on our legs and everything, but he, he nearly stepped on this guy. So yeah, no joke.
1: (laughs) I mean, definitely, when it comes to hiking, wearing snake boots or kind of any of that kind of protection is incredibly important because you, you don't you don't know what you're going to be stepping on. And for today's topic, it is the others, which are non-human intelligences and encounters with Bigfoots and cryptids. So there's definitely been a lot of talk and discussion uh, with the connection between Bigfoot with UFOs and um and and of them having having a really high intelligence. Can you give us an overview on your perspective on that?
0: yeah I certainly can again, the first interesting paradox to me is that there is so much interest in UFOs right now and it's easy to see why really this is in large part on account of the fact that the United States military and other you know uh, governments around the world and other militaries now uh, they are very seriously looking at what they have only identified as far as being objects uh, that can't be identified. Uh, and if we look at the ODNI report, of course, they kind of, you know, split that into several categories, you know, of which we have aerial clutter, you know, maybe natural phenomena, um, maybe technologies that aren't recognized, they could belong to another world power, you know, maybe it could be experimental U S technologies, you know, the kind of stuff that skunk works, you know, is, is cooking up out there on the West coast or what have you. But, um, what seems to be the conclusion again, more broadly is simply that we do have things in the, in the sky that our military can't identify, And it wasn't a big surprise that within weeks after the issuance of that report, which was very vague in terms of any actual clear determinations it made, we've seen reporting in, for instance, The Guardian in recent days talking about people who claim to have had experiences with the intelligences or the entities, you know, presumed to be in control of these aircraft. Our own uh, The Debrief actually recently featured an article by New York Times, former New York Times reporter and an award-winning reporter, of course, Ralph Blumenthal, who co-authored the 2017 article about uh, the Pentagon's UFO program, A-Tip. Uh, But now Ralph, of course, writing for The Debrief, looking at, well, you know, people also say that they've met those who claim to control these craft. Um, it's interesting to me that many look at that and they seem to be very warm toward the idea of extraterrestrial visitation. And yet the idea that there could be intelligent species, perhaps even human-like species right here on earth that remain undiscovered by science, people just shun that. They exclude that possibility. They call it myth, folklore, or simply insanity, if not absurdity. Uh, Yes, we're talking about Sasquatch here. This is an idea that much of modern science has no time for. While we see scientists now saying, well, Maybe we're being visited by extraterrestrials, to to which I say, let's hold our horses. You know, I'm very interested in the possibility that Earth could be visited by ET and that maybe that could be a solution to the UFO issue. Uh, But we don't have any direct evidence that correlates those two phenomena yet. We may in in the years ahead. On the other hand, if we look at the paleoanthropological record and we look at early human ancestors, you know, archaic human types like Neanderthals, Denisovans, Homo floresiensis in Indonesia, if we go even further back and we look at some of the presumably extinct varieties of, of you know, the greater primate family that existed during the last geological epoch, the Pleistocene, Gigantopithecus blackie, Specifically, we have large megafaunal apes, which, according to some estimates, may have actually been bipedal like we are. Um, And again, these seem to be a very good match in the ancient past for what some people claim that they still see today, particularly in the Pacific Northwestern United States. But there are, uh, you know, counterparts in other parts of the world that include, for instance, you know, the Himalayas uh, in Nepal and other, you know, countries in that area and then there are other uh, varieties also in parts of Eurasia uh, extending as far west maybe as Pakistan and you know extending on down into uh, the uh, eastern world as well these would be known by different names but in in some total they all are essentially described as being the same thing hairy manlike primitive creatures and there is an abundance of literature and myth and folklore and even in modern accounts by some scientists uh, that seem to corroborate with this idea that there may have been recent survival of hominins or early kinds of hominoids, and hence the idea of the relict hominoid. This is basically a fancy way of describing creatures like Sasquatch in the sense a relict is an animal believed to have been from the past and would be presumed to be extinct, but which may have actually persisted until fairly recently. Hominoids essentially having a human-like shape, but not being human. Uh, There's a surprising amount of data in support of their existence. And so it baffles me, Christina, that we turn our nose up at that prospect When in fact, that doesn't fall outside of things known to exist in the fossil record, uh, whereas we don't have direct evidence of extraterrestrial visitation yet, although I strongly suspect at times they may have been here and UFOs may represent that. But again, scientists are all too willing to jump in now and look at that because the military says it's important. I think we need to open our minds a bit.
1: And it's not necessarily a a bad thing that they've gotten an interest in it now. And there were definitely a lot of things that you touched on that I want to dive in a little bit deeper. But before we do that, I want to thank um, Zofa for the super chat. Thank you so much. And he actually hit a point that literally my next question. So it says here, a Russian former MOD member claimed a hairy representative of the other world once appeared before guards at uh, Zargat aerosol, drank water, and then vanished. So my question to that is, you know, with Bigfoot having a really long history with tribes and people from around the world, but they never found any bodies or bones or fossils, right, from all of the excavations, um, many have speculated of them being able to jump between realms or dimensions or even have speculated teleportation. What are your thoughts on this? And do you have any theories?
0: Certainly. And I also have to give a shout out to Jazz Shaw, my good pal, who's there in the chat. Uh, Lots of familiar names and faces there and glad to see everybody. Please support Christina and her work, by the way. And if you can do so monetarily, I do. You should also. But anyway, all public service announcements aside, uh, I do have theories about the apparent paranormal abilities that are ascribed to these uh, animals at times. at first I I do want to back up very briefly and just note that in my response to your last question, I think most would probably be expecting I would be talking about are these creatures from UFOs? Are they representatives of, you know, you know, said UFOs note, I didn't respond to the question in that way. And the reason why is because again, the comparison I see between UFOs and these creatures is one of why are we seriously studying one, which seems more out there conceptually the other, to me, depending on how we frame the debate, It's not a far out there concept, and yet it is ridiculed customarily. We've seen a glass ceiling break with UFOs. So the most important relationship between those two subjects to me is seeing a similar glass ceiling breaking about this topic as well. But as far as their abilities, again, this is something that we often see described. People claim that Sasquatch and similar animals they believe that they've observed, uh, you know, have these kinds of, you know, liminal abilities, they can disappear at will or become invisible or something along those lines. Again, I have to cite the work of my colleague, Matt Pruitt, who has spent many, many years studying large uh, predators, the likes of lions, you know, and tigers and things like this, and in cultures where those animals actually exist you see very similar belief systems about them being liminal creatures, you know, which are able to kind of traverse realities, which maybe can move silently or that they possess other kind of unique uh, characteristics. Uh, It is my contention that there are good, good qualifiers in indigenous American traditional folklore uh, that probably uh, represent what we would know as the modern Sasquatch or what we would call the modern Sasquatch. Um, among uh, various different tribal groups in the Pacific Northwest, like the Clallam, we have the traditions of Siatco, uh, known by other names, but which generally are described as large, hairy giants which stink. But now that all kind of you know fits into our scope of modern biology. But the Siatco were also said to be able to be ventriloquists. They could throw their voice. They were said to be able to hypnotize animals, and this is how they hunted. Now these you know are where we start getting into the stra- slightly more extraordinary. Capabilities. According to some accounts, the Siatco also were defined as you know spirits that haunted watering holes. Um, if we were to try and think about what exactly is going on here and why these kinds of things are attributed to a large animal, again, according to my colleague Matt Pruitt, we would need to look no further than the way that people have treated animals like lions and and you know tigers, a large animal, and yet they can move almost silently through the forest. You don't know that they're there until they're right up on you really what we're describing aren't paranormal abilities. What we're describing are adaptations by a large predatory carnivore, which if it can't move silently, it can't hunt. If it can't hunt, it doesn't survive. And so, again, another interpretation is that some of the behaviors of animals, even large mammals, uh, at times can seem supernatural. And many cultures have attributed those kinds of supernatural characteristics to known large animals, predatory carnivores, but they aren't really supernatural. We can have a lion or a tiger in a zoo, and we know a lot about the biology of these animals and their behaviors. But it is interesting to see that that tendency to attribute supernatural abilities to animals is something that we find throughout time and it also falls into the scope of you know how known animals are treated doesn't surprise me that something unknown to science might be given similar attributions with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
1: So then why do you think that, at least publicly, there haven't been any remains of Bigfoot that could be
0: studied? That's a very good question. But again, if we look back at the paleoanthropological record, we have found in many instances where early archaic ancestors of humans did appear to engage in intentional burial of their dead. Um, I produce a podcast all about this topic in addition to my main show, the Micah Hanks Programme. And this supplemental podcast is called Sasquatch Tracks. And although we haven't aired this latest episode yet, uh, the team and I recently sat down and spoke with Gareth Patterson, who is a researcher who in South Africa has studied elephants for many, many decades. Uh, It's interesting because, as with other animals, Gareth has noted that uh, not only do elephants, as large as they are, remain incredibly elusive, And he has studied for decades a variety that was believed to be all but extinct essentially uh, until people started seeing them and reporting that they were seeing them again just a few years ago. But Gareth also during his time in the bush has observed on many occasions, you know, South African, what again, we could only call hominoids Sasquatch like creatures. And he's written a book called beyond the secret elephants that talks about this. But again, Gareth also talks about the fact that another of the unusual behaviors that elephants engage in, which he has observed many times, is that they tend to bury their dead. And in one instance, he knows of a human being who was actually buried under a bunch of brush that was believed to have been dead. The human had fallen, I think, off of a vehicle and had been injured. Elephants came along and covered it. And so we found this fascinating because, again, there are a variety of different animals which engage in that kind of behavior. We know from archaeological evidence that early human ancestors engaged in the burial of their dead. So one mechanism for understanding, and again, this is only one because there are a lot of problems with the absence of a body when it comes to the idea of Sasquatch. But one mechanism for explaining this might be that they too bury their dead. And again, I would find it hard not to consider that given the descriptions of these creatures and being so human-like as they are. Even if they are, again, animals uh, all but in appearance, they very well may engage in some human-like behaviors, as much as elephants do. And that could account for why we don't have bodies. But it is still a challenge to science to suppose that we don't have a specimen yet. So many people claim that they've seen these creatures and yet we've never found a body. Um, but again, I'd also point out, and I know this from experience, you know, I see black bears pretty frequently here in the Southern Appalachian mountains where I am. Never have I found a body. Only on one occasion have I ever actually found the body of a, uh, deer, uh, which died presumably a natural death. And I found it because I was crawling around back in a thicket one time when I was a kid, you know, like a crazy person. (laughs) So uh, it is indeed possible, I think, that if we have an animal species that is in small enough numbers, if it's intelligent, if it buries its dead, and if they largely habitate in areas, if they live in areas where people are unlikely to go, uh, the, these might be factors that would contribute to the lack of the body. But again, I, I still recognize that as a tremendous challenge to science. And one of the reasons why I'm still a bit hesitant to go all in and say, okay, yeah, I think these things are out there.
1: I think that's a very thorough uh, theory onto why people are not finding these bodies. I, I think it, it it's can be accepted now there are a few super chats I want to address first of them being jazz it's so good to see you jazz thank you for being here it says so glad to see Micah here talking to this channel if you don't already follow all of his online shows you are missing out I learned so much from him jazz I'm happy you brought that up and The Micah Hank Show is probably one of my favorite podcasts. And I'm not saying that just because he's here. I even tell him that in the private chat. But like when I'm driving, I will listen to it. He has awesome guests. He has great questions. And all of his links are below. So you guys are missing out if you don't know who this guy is. I'm so serious. Jamie, thank you. Um, It says, Micah, what are your thoughts on Dr. Matthew Johnson's claims that the Xenu can transform into orbs and regenerate themselves inside of trees
0: that's a good question, although I'm not sure that I'm familiar with the Xenu or zanu i'm not I'm not familiar with that um if maybe if if um j m can elaborate on that in the chat we could we could come back around to that now um I will say this though that I've talked to a lot of people who in areas where Sasquatch are purportedly seen. There are sightings of these kind of orbs or earth-like kind of phenomena. When I say earth-like, I'm referring to um, what are presumably natural plasmas that occur in areas that are seismically or geologically active. We have an area like this very close to my home, which is called Brown Mountain, North Carolina. I am all but convinced that these have an, a completely natural explanation. In fact, uh, it seems very likely to me, based on the way that witnesses described these objects, that when I was in Chapada dos Viaderos in Brazil recently, much of the UAP observed in that region, I mean, it is, to a T, almost identical in description to what we see at Brown Mountain. And I suspect, yet again, that we have probably a natural phenomenon that occurs there. Hestel in Norway is a famous place where this happens. But um, the fact that those kinds of things might occur in areas that coincide with sightings of a cryptid creature or something along those lines, to me, does not necessarily mean that they're connected. Again, we have to remember that fundamental tenet of science. Correlation does not necessarily mean causation. Now, briefly on that point, let me come back to UFOs and Sasquatch again for a moment, because the Freakonomics blog did a really interesting blog post about that a few years back where they were saying, interestingly, you know, a lot of areas where people say that they see Sasquatch also, you know, happen to be areas where people see a lot of UFOs. So does that mean that Sasquatches and UFOs are somehow connected? Well, again, I think we have to look a little more deeply. What is the single factor that unites those sightings? Well, it's people. And where you have people, that's where you actually have people claiming that they see these kinds of things. Um, but removing the human factor, there doesn't necessarily appear to be any distinctive correlation between the appearances of these phenomena. So again, a lot of things might appear to be related, but you got to ask yourself, you know, really, what is the reason for those apparent, you know, similarities in the areas where these things exist? Is there really a correlation, or is that really just how we look at it? In my opinion, I don't see correlations between the phenomena.
1: To to me, it kind of sounds like if if a a tree's in the forest and it falls and there's no one there to hear, did it really make a sound? That's kind of kind of what I'm getting from
0: it. You're right, yeah. Because again, really, we often put ourselves at the center of everything. I mean, throughout time, humans have long thought, you know, Earth is at the center of the universe, and everything circles around us. You know, we we tend to really anthropomorphize a lot of. The things that we observe. And and again, when it comes to UFOs, we should, I'll just add this, we should be very careful in terms of trying to ascribe meaning or intention to observations of UAP behaviors. I would say the same goes towards Sasquatch, but in my opinion, if this is a creature, if it really exists, and if they are out there and if they resemble humans so much in shape, then probably they have followed at least fairly similar evolutionary paths. And therefore, they would in likelihood be an awful lot like us being Earthlings. We we shouldn't necessarily presume the same thing about any prospective alien life that we may discover in the future or UAP should that be what they happen to be.
1: I think this also kind of sounds like Schrodinger's cat as well. <laughs> i can see that connection also (laughs) um exopa has another super chat thank you and it says in the bible there's a tale of two brothers jacob and esau am i saying that right
0: Mm -hmm. or esau yeah
1: esau okay (laughs) one hairless and smart one strong and covered in hair god ended up favoring the hairless one i have not heard that story have you
0: Yes, uh there are a lot of uh traditions uh you know again this is actually very popular among various different religious groups these days. Um I believe that uh in the Mormon faith in in a lot of historical literature there are connections made between the biblical Cain and uh alleged sightings one Tennessee pastor in the uh 19th century claimed to have been riding along when he encountered a hair-covered man running along in the same direction that he was going, and that as he came upon him, it became clear to him that he had seen that scourge of the earth, the Cursed One Cain. Well, modern proponents of the existence of Sasquatch have tried to kind of appropriate that tale and say, well, he actually saw a Bigfoot. For all we know, maybe he did. But again, I would say that really, if you look deeply at, for instance, Mormon literature, uh, you, you actually see a lot of uh, similar accounts. And really what they seem to be is you know, a call back to that tradition. But I mean, I have seen a lot of people try to make those sorts of connections. You see similar things with the Nephilim. You know, to me, those connections are interesting, but I think that many of them may be superficial connections. Again, I My treatment of the Sasquatch subject is strictly in terms of paleoanthropology and biology. Interesting, though, some of those biblical connections may be. I don't know that they're necessarily something that help further our understanding of what the creature might actually represent, apart from the fact that some people who may have had valid historical observations of these creatures may indeed have interpreted it Through a sort of religious lens. And why wouldn't they? I mean, if we look back through ancient history, going back to antiquity, there are reports of strange phenomena seen in the skies described as, you know, angels, as heavenly bodies. They very well may have been descriptions in early times of UAP. But again, through the ideologies of the observers at that time, they were interpreted as religious phenomena. And indeed, many UFOs that are seen in modern times are described by people as being, oh my God, I thought it was the end of the world. Oh my gosh, I thought that I was going to die. I thought that Jesus had come back. I mean, no joke. Um, My dear friend, Dr. David Halperin has gone to great lengths to document the way that there are so many incredible, interesting you know, connections between religious beliefs over time and the UFO experience. And that's certainly something that could apply to Sasquatch also.
1: I, from a lot of stories that I've heard, it's, it's a kind of like, you're entering murky water when you're bringing religious aspects to this kind of phenomenon. There are many people that have encountered Bigfoot or UAPs and it changed their spiritual belief and also vice versa where they see something and they drop it all together. And they're like, well now I'm now I'm atheist, something like that. So I feel like it's very confusing and I guess it all just depends on personal perspective on it.
0: It does, you know, uh, speaking with Harvard astronomer Avi Lowe, who I believe you've spoken with as well, you know, Avi, uh, He's interesting to me because here's uh, a, a great scientist and astronomer, obviously very open-minded, and I realize he put, he receives a little pushback for how open-minded he is about you know the prospect of alien life, its existence, our detection of it, and also extending that to the study of UAP in more recent uh, weeks and months. But uh, but Avi also is willing to discuss religion. Um, while maintaining what I believe is indeed a firm grounding in science. Um, and so no matter how we approach these subjects, I think it's fine to entertain ideas and to address you know, certain topics and things, and even to be a person of faith, if, if that's what you believe. Um, that doesn't necessarily... Uh, interfere with your studies, although I think it can, depending on how it's approached. But I personally find those discussions very interesting.
1: Oh my gosh, absolutely. I find them fascinating. There was one point in my college career when I wanted to drop everything and just learn religion, but it ended up not happening. So tonight on Fade to Black with Jimmy Church, he's having the Bigfoot researcher Todd Stanley on as a guest. Have you worked with or looked into his research and videos of encounters with alleged Bigfoot clans?
0: Yes, I have. I've never spoken with Todd Standing. Um, and if I am to be completely honest, as I always try to be, uh, I'm not particularly impressed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With uh, Todd's claims, uh, much of the evidence that he provides in support of his claims. Looks to me like it's fabricated. Now, that's just how it looks to me, and I can't prove that otherwise, but I do know that this is a feeling, a sentiment that's shared by many in the community. Um, I know and I respect Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Meldrum, and he has even gone into the field with Standing. Um, And doing so again is is in no way and was not interpreted by me as being some sort of an endorsement of Todd Standing's claims. Um, Now, some have said that, you know, even if Todd has presented some very questionable information in support of his claims, that that may have been the result of his effort to try and bring broader awareness to it, but that, you know, Todd may have actually had real experiences and that at the end of the day, he really believes these creatures exist and that he may have actually encountered them. And I would say that that's a very distinctive possibility, often in UFO circles. We see this is actually great, Christina. How often we're able to kind of compare and contrast Sasquatch and UFOs like this, so uh, which to me is very meaningful cultural dialogue. But again, in UFO research, we often see people who seem to have had a legitimate observation or experience, and then as their the interest in their experience begins to wane a little over time, they may begin to present more uh, questionable claims over time. And then before long, unfortunately, those individuals may, you know, fall somewhat into disrepute because people no longer believe their claims and it sort of casts dispersion on everything that they have said and people are are no longer inclined to believe anything they say, which is unfortunate because I do think that that's a phenomenon that occurs sometimes. Some people have valid experiences, they get some attention for it and for whatever reason they want to try and maintain that interest, but it leads to less and less credible claims over time.
1: And that's what can be really difficult. And I think for a lot of us, a big reason to why we tell stories is to get that, not to only to entertain and to inform others, but also to kind of receive um, reactions as well. And that kind of feeds us, regardless if it's a true story or not a true story. That's why we share stories for those reactions, but also to educate the public. Uh, Matt Frost, thank you. It says, there are no known fossils of the great apes. Also, the mountain apes were thought to be cryptids.
0: Yeah, that's that. Matt is spot on, and thank you for helping out, Matt. That's a, he raises a very, very good point right there. Uh, until the confirmation of the discovery of mountain gorillas, uh, you know, in the last century, well, I'm sorry, in the century before that, gosh, it's the 21st century, you know, when you're time traveling, it tends to get a little wibbly wobbly sometimes. But uh, Matt's correct that, uh, in the sense of, uh, some modern extant species being once recognized as cryptids. There were legends about mountain gorillas as being manlike monsters, but then they were confirmed and they were actually found. Now uh, in more recent years, there have been fossil recoveries as I understand it of chimpanzees, but he's correct also that many of the extant modern, you know, great apes, they, they don't have corroborative fossil records in support of their existence. So should we necessarily rule out that Sasquatch exists based only on its absence in the fossil record? But then again, the late Dr. Grover Krantz and others would maintain that indeed, if Sasquatch is Gigantopithecus Blackie, we do have that in the fossil record. So wouldn't that be humorous if indeed that, uh, not to make a, a bone joke there, but again, wouldn't it be funny if if Sasquatch actually is represented in the fossil record or something similar to it? And yet many of the existing great apes today, we don't, we don't have them. I'll also just say this, look at how seldom... Homo sapiens sapiens appears in the fossil record. Now, we have fossil human remains, but if you go online and do a search, you'd think that we just have them coming out our ears. They actually are much less frequent discovery than you would probably think. And again, the the we, we won't talk about it now, but again, the requisites for fossil formation are quite rigorous. In my opinion, the majority of of species that have existed throughout the course of the existence of our planet probably have not been represented in the fossil record. We've only seen a small fraction.
1: And while we're on the topic of that, going back into not really being able to find any fossils of Bigfoot, then people just begin to believe that it's an absolute hoax, that there's no real evidence, nothing tangible, Then it can't be real. But what do you say to that?
0: Well, again, I would just say uh, if you think that it's absence in the fossil record is evidence of absence. In other words, that the creature is. And this, again, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing an idea that is often discussed in the sciences. Absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. But those who would try to say, well, we don't have. Actually, let's run down the list really quickly. This could be fun. OK, no Sasquatch in the fossil record. Again, we've already kind of outlined this with Mr. Frost's help. There are plenty of animals uh, that exist today that we know exist, but which we don't see in the fossil record. I would say that there are a few contenders, not just Gigantopithecus. Again, many of the descriptions of Sasquatch seem to be a good match for them, or its kindred around the world, like the Eurasian Al-Musti, uh the Yeti, as described in the uh, you know very various portions of the Himalayas and whatnot. And there are other varieties too. Um, but again, some of the descriptions also seem to match uh, ancient human archaic ancestors, the likes of Paranthropus, maybe even uh, Homo erectus, and possibly others in Sumatra. And in the Indonesian world, we have stories of what are known as gugu indigenously. But, of course, we in the West would know this as um, either uh, one of the names, of course, that it is known by is Orang Pendek. And there are other varieties, too. But what we also have in the fossil record in fairly recent discoveries is Homo floresiensis, you know, the flores man, hobbits, essentially small hominoids uh, or hominids, I guess they would have been. But again, it's interesting that we have legends and traditions about diminutive you know, hair-covered people who live in the forests in that part of the world. And in the fossil record, we seem to have something very similar. So, again, to those who say nothing in the fossil record, I would say look a little more closely at the fossil record, too. There's nothing in the historical record. If these creatures existed, they wouldn't just spring to life in the 1950s with Bigfoot in California or in the 1920s with Sasquatch in Canada or, you know, maybe in the 1800s with Yeti in uh, the Himalayas and in parts of Tibet, Nepal, etc., But I would say if we look at the deeper history, and this is a project I've been involved with in recent years, uh, I've found accounts of hair-covered, very large individuals in, for instance, China, going all the way back to the Warring States period, right, Uh, maybe back as far as around 200, 250 B.C. Um, We find accounts throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, We certainly find in uh, indigenous American traditional folklore the Co like we mentioned earlier. Um, and although some have tried to say that there's no historical evidence in support of the idea of wild men or Sasquatch in America, going back prior to maybe the last century, there's an abundance of it going back to the 1900s and maybe earlier. Uh, Chad Arment is a historian who has really taken great, Pains to mine such accounts from historical documented sources and also newspaper accounts. And his book, the, *The Historical Bigfoot*, as the name would indicate, is a great treasure trove of you know what may be in some cases. You can't rule out hoaxes in every instance, tall tales, newspaper hoaxes, things like that. But uh, again, if if one of those accounts represented a real entity, the likes of which we would associate with the modern belief in Sasquatch, it would seem to help establish a historical provenance and one that is a reality. And then lastly, biology. Well, if these things existed, we'd have a body by now. You know, a hunter would have shot one. Well, maybe not so so likely because I've got a lot of friends who continue to say, my old gripe exists. A hunter would have shot one of these things by now. But to to those who would argue that i would say anyone who is a sportsman and who has been in the field and who knows anything about you know hunting i don't want to get into a political debate about it right now but you know in terms of the scope of this conversation they also recognize their quarry they never take aim and fire at anything that they don't recognize if i saw an animal in the forest that looked very closely similar to a human being the last thing i would do is pull the trigger because I'd be afraid I might be shooting a human being. And this is exactly what many hunters who have purportedly been in that situation have said. Now, again, I still maintain that the absence of a body is a problem. That is a challenge to science, and it's a huge problem in terms of establishing the credibility of the existence of these creatures. But I think that arguments can be made, as we have done in three different areas, that help us to understand, really, that you know, this isn't so clear-cut as many skeptics have tried to make it out to be.
1: I guess when it comes to all things mysterious, it's never as clear-cut as we want it to be either. John Music has a super chat. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that's giving super chat donations today. I mean, in every day. They really help keep my channel going and growing. So I'm always incredibly appreciative. So John says, Micah, a lot of what Dave Politis research into missing people in Bookfoot is similar to what Bigelow's crew experienced on Skinwalker Ranch. Tall large beings stepping out of portals, creatures and trees, stealth, etc. Your thoughts?
0: Yeah, David Politis is a very interesting character. Um, and I'm, I don't mean that in the pejorative, I, I actually think he's done a lot of very interesting research. Um, he certainly has kind of carved out a unique niche for himself in this community. Regretfully, I was not able to speak to him, although he and I were both in attendance at a uh, conference back in the summer, uh, about which, Christina, you and I have talked about a little bit and everything. And, uh, you know, I find David's research interesting, but I feel that, uh, and he would probably agree, he's haunted somewhat by the fact that as a person who now studies disappearances in national parks— Previously, he also studied Sasquatch and very seriously. And uh, and David and I have shared actually one particular thread with our research, which is, does the U.S. government, do agencies within the federal government uh, have any interest in Sasquatch? David has tried to establish, you know, answers to that question too, for which I have to respect. Um, I may not agree with all of David's theories and conclusions, but I certainly respect a lot of the work he's done. Now, that said, uh, about, you know,
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Comparisons between Skinwalker Ranch and and the, the missing persons cases. One of the problems with the missing four one one research that David has done is that a lot of people can't differentiate it from his previous Sasquatch research. Even though he's tried to do that and he's tried to say, "Look, we aren't necessarily talking about Sasquatch here." although I do feel that that's implied in many of the cases that he uh, has explored and written about. However, anomalous phenomena in various areas, you know, in different manifestations does sort of, uh, you know, exist in some of the missing 411 cases. I won't get into some of the criteria that David has looked at and, and some of the patterns and trends that he has ascribed to that, to the disappearances, but he certainly does ascribe some aspects that that are anomalous and it certainly has attracted both the cryptid community. It's attracted some UFO researchers. I won't speak to David's own beliefs, but I do know that David has corresponded with a lot of people who are prominent in UFO circles, like uh, you know Bruce McAbee and his wife and others. I think that the instance that the uh, person was asking about there about people or creatures and trees, you know, and things like this, this actually references a sighting that Bruce McAbee's wife had of something that she saw in a tree while she was hunting. And that definitely was interesting to uh, David Politis. So again, I don't know if there are explicit connections, but one might say that there are at least some superficial similarities between the phenomena described at Skinwalker Ranch and uh, some of David's writings in his Missing 411 books. And I recommend them. They're interesting reads.
1: They are, and and the great thing about his books in particular, and along with with his documentaries, is that he doesn't tell you flat out what he thinks it is. Instead, he he collects all the data and allows the audience to come up with their own conclusions. He will ne I have never heard him say, "I believe it's Bigfoot." I believe it's
0: aliens. You're, um, yeah, you're no, you're spot on, Christina, and thank you for pointing that out again, David. I think a lot of David's critics read into what he has written and have tried to ascribe. You know, to his thoughts on these issues, things that he has never said. The one thing he has maintained for years is that I'm trying to collect the data and present it without necessarily drawing conclusions, which I realize frustrates a lot of people. But I really like that. Um, That aspect of what he does is great because, again, as a UFO researcher, I got to tell you. I do the same thing. I I try to look at the data and analyze the information without drawing conclusions. Look, we don't deny that there's a phenomena when we talk about UAP, but we are far from being able to say conclusively what it is. So, you know, David, I think, is, much to his credit, tried to do the same thing. And so whatever his critics think about his research, you know, what he's actually said is in a lot of ways, I think what a good researcher tries to do, what a good scientist would try to do when looking at anything that is apparently real, but which we are far from being able to understand.
1: And when it, A lot of us, of course, we definitely want the answers, especially in today's age, and we all have a tiny little amazing computer in our pocket that can give us all the answers that we need. But when it comes to these kinds of mysteries, no one has all the answers. And I think for those that are researching the topic and just placing data without their opinions or bias, I think it should be some of the most valued people in the in the field.
0: I agree. Well said.
1: So there are, while we're on this topic, you know, there are countless TV shows and organizations that are looking into the Bigfoot legend. I mean, there are a ton. And I always ask myself if they're if they're doing things right, just because as, as someone looking out, we can always see their flaws. Right. But from your understanding, what have you found that in your opinion is tangible, groundbreaking evidence?
0: Well, you know, that's the difficulty, and again, why I've referred to it throughout the course of this conversation as being a challenge. Uh, there is very little physical evidence that's, that's unequivocally associated with Sasquatch, um, but there is some compelling evidence, nonetheless, which I think is worthy of consideration. Um Arguably, the best known is, of course, the footage that was collected in the late 1960s at Bluff Creek, California, by cowboys Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Roger Patterson died, I believe, in 1972, so he didn't live very long after that footage was made. Um, many skeptics are confident in already concluding that it's been thoroughly debunked. I'm not so sure to say uh, that I would say that. At one time, I I did kind of say, there's even a blog on my website talking about, let's talk about Sasquatch, but leave Patty at the door, because my conclusion was essentially this. The film looks really good, but there are some problems with it. Quite a few problems with it, in fact. And therefore, I don't know that we'll ever resolve whether it's authentic or not. And therefore, it's going to be difficult for us to use this as the cornerstone for our argument that Sasquatch exists. Now, more recently, um, having reviewed the works of, for instance, the late Dr. John um, also the uh, work of Bill Munn, uh, looking uh, at the, of course, the writings of Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, and a number of others who have you know, painstakingly examined that film, and this is significant, not just the film, but also the spore, the, the castings of the spore, the tracks that were left on the sandbar where Patty, as she has been known, uh, was traversing. It's important to talk about that very briefly because, again, the film alone looks really good, but the footprints may help us flesh out this story, and that's often left out of the debate. Uh, shortly after the film was made, uh, you know, Bob Gimlin went back to the film site and saw that it was raining cats and dogs and thought these footprints are going to be destroyed. So he starts taking pieces of bark from a nearby, uh, you know, fallen trees that he kind of collected and formed a natural dam there in Bluff Creek. And he, he starts covering the footprints with bark to protect them. Now, within a few weeks of the footage being made, maybe just a few days, um, we actually had an independent researcher, uh, attend, you know, uh, appear there on site, and all, Bob Titmus was his name. He was actually a taxidermist by a trade. But Bob Titmus goes, and he also makes castings of the footprints. But right after the film had been made, there had been one or two castings made by Roger Patterson, and the filmmaker as well. Then, independently from those two, another gentleman who was with the U.S. Forest Service uh, named Lyle Laverty went out there, and he photographed the track. Um, you know, the, the actual track line there on on Bluff Creek. Uh, the following spring, when uh, John Green uh, reached the site, and I believe uh, probably that same fall, that Peter Byrne was on site investigating, but they all saw the track line. And indeed, John had said that, you know, the footprints were deep enough in the sand that the rough uh, area where the actual You know, track line had existed could still be seen that following uh, spring, even though the the tracks had eroded significantly. But there were a lot of people who independently returned to the site. They were able to establish the film site. They took photographs there. And they also saw those footprints and castings were made. When we analyze those track castings, according to Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, one of them appears to uh, convey what he calls a mid-tarsal break. Now, if you think about it in terms of the human foot, the human foot, in rare instances, actually, can build, bend slightly in the center, but that's not a common feature of the human foot. It is something that we see representative in footprints left at sites like Laetoli and others that ancient human ancestors seem to possess, and of course, modern extant great apes often possess this too. It is the contention of uh, Jeffrey Meldrum that both the Patterson subject and other instances of foot tra- uh, foot castings in the United States and some from parts of Eurasia appear to display this. Mid tarsal break, uh, representative of a slightly more complex and dynamic foot than the average human foot, and in Meldrum's contention, that that ability for the for the foot to have that mid tarsal break is indicative of a non human that left those tracks at uh, Bluff Creek. Now, briefly, I'll just also address some of the skeptical you know arguments against that film. We know who wore the suit. His name was um, Bob Hieronymus. He was a retired Pepsi Cola bottler from Yakima, Washington. Indeed, Bob Hieronymus claims to have worn the suit, but when asked initially about the suit that he wore, he said it was made of horse hide and it stunk and it was a pretty crude affair. There was like a t-shirt kind of top part that came down and then maybe a drawstring that held the pant portion up. Well, that completely conflicts with the story of Philip Morris, a a costume maker from Charlotte, North Carolina, close to where I reside, who claimed that he actually sold the suit to uh, Roger Patterson. Now, when they brought this to the attention of uh, Bob Hieronymus, he said, oh, you know what? Actually, yeah, that was the suit I wore. And and again, we can recognize the suit from uh, uh, Philip Morris's uh, costume shop because he put photos online. Now, Morris said that there was a zipper in the back. Analysts for years have looked for the zipper in the footage and cannot find evidence of a zipper. And indeed, there appears to be musculature that can be seen under the fairly short hair of the sp- of the subject of the film. But another problem with that whole idea about the suit and whoever might have made it was that Philip Morris, even when he watched the film and said it was the suit he sold Patterson, Morris maintains, but, you know, uh, the suit I made didn't have breasts. And very evidently, Patty is a she because she has breasts and rather... Prominent ones. He said uh, the arms are longer. He must have made arm extensions or something. He said the mask is nothing like the mask on the suit I sold him, so he must have modified that. But I'm confident it was the suit I sold him. When in fact, the way that Philip Morris described his observations of the film, it didn't sound anything like the suit that he sold Roger Patterson. So there are problems with the film. But I would maintain that there may be more problems with the skeptical narratives, which have seemed to try and kind of hobble together all these different ideas and what this guy says he remembers and this guy says he did to try and fit a narrative, which, in fact, is anything but clear cut. So, again, it doesn't move us any closer towards saying that the film is authentic, but I don't think that it's been as roundly debunked, as many skeptics argue. Now, sadly, back to your main point, Christina, that's some of the best evidence we have. There are the footprint castings also, which I think are probably of more importance, really, and not just with the film subject. I mean, they've been retrieved from a lot of areas. But I hope that in the years ahead, diligent citizen scientists and also professional scientists will help to continue to gather data uh, that may move us toward the eventuality of establishing that there is a reality to this.
1: I definitely hope so. I mean, we can only go up from here, seems like. Michigan has a question and it says the UFO report in June talked about various sensors recorded data, but they leave out talking about a specific sensor sonar. Does Micah have any info on sonar contact with USOs?
0: I don't have any direct contact uh, or information about contact uh, established using that as a sensory mechanisms, uh, meso- mechanism. But Tim McMillan, of course, my co founder at the debrief, along with MJ Benias, Tim and I on the telephone this morning, of course, were talking about a lot of different things. And over the years, that's uh, something we've looked at. I do understand, or at least I, I believe that there had been some purported sonar uh, traces of at the time of the Nimitz incident. I, I don't know that that was. Established conclusively, but again, I've I've heard mention of the idea that again that whatever the objects were. Keep in mind, when Commander Fravor and Alex Dietrich uh, are sent there, and they first observe the the object moving very quickly and erratically over the surface of the of the ocean, there appeared to be something underwater as well. Um, sightings of objects coming out of or going into the ocean and other large bodies of water go all the way back to the Blue Book years, and in fact, a large you know swath of the Blue Book reports involved maritime UFO sightings and encounters. Um, but indeed I have heard of detections on sonar over the years and I don't, I can't confirm whether that was indeed a part of the data that was relevant at the time of the Nimitz encounter, although I'd heard something to that effect at some point, And I would like to explore that a little more in depth. I will say this though, during the cold war, there was an interesting phenomenon, uh, and the Russian, the Soviet at the time. Uh, the Soviet Navy referred to this as quackers or quacker phenomena. Quacker uh, is a expression which was sort of automata for the sound that these things made because they they were objects that were often observed on sonar um, by those on board these Soviet uh, submarines, and these things would sometimes come and come in and circle around the uh, the uh, submarines like they were examining them or, or observing them, and then they'd go and just take off and just vanish from Sonar, like they moved incredibly quickly. And it made a frog-like kind of croaking sound, so croaker would be another expression for these. But, you know, in English, for some reason, we translate it to be quacker. Uh, But yes, indeed, the Soviets did describe that they were being observed, and they looked at a number of different possibilities. Are these a biological organism, something that's taking interest in us? But they said the speed at which they appeared to move seemed to rule that out. They could only say that it was technology, and so therefore it must have been CIA drones. Now, isn't that funny that, for decades, they say it might be us, and we say it might be them. But I—I'll just put, you know, put forward for the record, Roscoe Hillen-Cotter, uh, the former CIA director, who in 1961 said, "None of our intelligence indicates that the Soviets have a technology comparable to what people say that they're seeing." It's time we take serious the idea that it might belong to someone or something else. I think that that remains very true today,
1: and. You know, we've known for a long time that the government just has been so interested in UFOs. But what about Bigfoot? I mean, are there any projects or operations that you're aware of that have been conducted by the government or even by law enforcement agencies in the USA in the pursuit of Bigfoot?
0: That's a great question. Thank you for asking that, because I've, I've spent quite a while looking into that possibility. I've filed Freedom of Information Act requests with a number of different agencies that include U.S. Forest Service, National Park Service, even the FBI, the Army. Um, Best I can tell, having spoken with people who worked in some of those branches of government and also having, you know, made inquiries on my own is that there is no interest that the government has with Sasquatch. Although on occasion, there are official documentation, uh, you know, in the form of reports and things like that that do turn up. Uh, I was able, through Freedom of Information Act request, able to obtain a, a pretty elaborate sighting report that was filed with the National Park Service, which if you just sent them a FOIA and said, give me all your Bigfoot files, you're never going to get anything. FOIA doesn't work like that. You have to be very specific. But I was very specific in one case, and I've tried in others and failed. But Indeed, uh, there are government documents that are kept about Sasquatch, but they don't indicate in my research any kind of a broader, serious network of of investigations that the government has undertaken about that subject. Although I think that there's probably more interest among people who have worked in government than most are probably aware. I've found evidence of, you know, guards at Air Force bases, uh, you know, government-employed geologists, um, national park uh, service, uh, you know, for instance, um, seasonal uh, seasonal rangers and things like that. For instance, at you know Yellowstone, Yellowstone, one of the largest and oldest national parks. Uh, I've found so much data about sightings by government employees at Yellowstone that I actually reached out to their public affairs and asked them, uh, "What is your official position on Sasquatch? Whether or not it exists." Uh, What would the park's response be to the discovery of a creature like this? And they simply said, we don't think that thing exists. Therefore, we have nothing to say about it and we have no official position. So I've definitely gone down that rabbit hole and I'm still doing that. In fact, there's a project I'm involved with right now uh, that's looking into that aspect of it. But I'll continue to search. Those are my findings uh, to date.
1: (laughs) Well, why why do you believe that science should care about the study of Bigfoot? I mean, we we are pushing f- for a serious push for UFO transparency and research because they're being evaluated as a possible national security threat, but what about Sasquatch? Why should scientists care?
0: Well, again, if we look at UFOs and why people care about that, again, there appears to be a technology not just buzzing around in our skies, but again, FOIA documents that have been uh, obtained by researchers, diligent researchers over the years, the likes of Barry Greenwood and Larry Fawcett, you know, uh, and, and researchers who have worked to establish the history of this topic, like Jan Aldrich and a number of others. I mean, there's so many people who have worked so tirelessly trying to help us, you know, illustrate the big picture when it comes to UFOs, at least in terms of what knowledge we have about them. The, a few things that are clear is that there, are it, not only are there technologies, but these things demonstrate clear intent. That was the title of a book that uh, Fawcett and Greenwood wrote back in 1980. Uh, they demonstrate what appears to be a clear intent to enter controlled airspace. They go into areas where, for instance, nuclear weapons and nuclear waste and things like this are stored. They will go in. They will conduct their aerial operations, whatever it is they're doing, and they will leave. And they don't pay attention to the fact that we have guards being scrambled on the ground, helicopters sent up there to intercept them. You know, these craft don't just fly around in our sky. They enter controlled airspace, which is a direct problem for national security. And that's not just in the United States. I suspect it happens all over the world. We certainly have Canadian officials who describe similar things. Uh, Daniel Otis is a colleague of mine in Canada who's been documenting this for Vice Canada. And again, really, his focus has been another area that's a threat. UAP in relation not just to the military and military locations, but also UAP as a possible threat, directly or indirectly, to aviation. So even commercial aviation, it's a problem there, too. As far as Sasquatch, obviously, the government doesn't seem to have very much concern about national security concerns that may stem from the existence of of a large hairy relic tominoid, but... Much like the reasons that we're taking interest in UAP like we are right now and the possible indirect threat they may represent, a challenge to national security as well as a threat to aviators and what have you. I would argue that if there is a large, you know, ape-like creature that exists... However crazy that possibility may seem, there's a tremendous amount of anecdotal evidence and I think a deeper historical provenance for the idea than many people realize. If those creatures exist, that is something I think that we really need to be aware of, um, both for the safety issue. Because, again, one of the one of the staples of indigenous American traditional beliefs when it came to this subject actually had to do with kidnappings. They said these things If we refer to um, Elkanah Walker, who was a missionary living among the Spokane in 1840, I believe he wrote a letter to a colleague where he said, "Uh, you know, allow me to trouble you with some of their superstitions. The Spokane believe in a kind of spirit that they say are stealers of men. They'll come down into the villages at night and they'll kidnap women and children and carry them back up into the mountains. Again, I I leave that to the imagination uh, for those out there, but certainly some of the things we've talked about over the course of this conversation seem to kind of point in that direction. Um, That's entirely speculative, but I'm saying that there maybe are safety considerations, public public safety considerations that should be taken seriously. Then on the more uh, positive side of things, I think that biologists, uh, anthropologists, uh, historians, you know if if a creature like this were proven to exist, they would immediately have to see the benefit from studying them. Again, the study of a creature so similar to ancient human ancestors only known to us in the fossil record, if that were to exist today, that would be a tremendous opportunity because it would allow us to see something about ourselves maybe and human evolution that otherwise we would never know from just studying fossils. So I think it's incumbent upon us if we we're to treat this scientifically to establish, you know, before we conclude presumptuously, no, they couldn't exist. It seems impossible. Therefore, it is. I think it's important for us to say, well, actually, with all this data, let's reevaluate this and let's determine really whether or not there is a there there. And if there is a there there, let's look at the public safety implications. Let's look at the implications for science and let's really see how we can both mitigate problems that might arise from this, but also benefit from the study of them.
1: I... I'm really happy that you said that because not even something that arose in my mind, but the fact that if these are studied by scientists, it can help us better understand ourselves. I think that's so beautifully put. And um, I'm really happy that you said that. Now, I want to change gears just a little bit. And my next question is, you know, non-human intelligence is such a a broad terminology. And so I want to get back to the links between UFO sightings and Bigfoot-like entities. So in your opinion, how much of this specific aspect of the non-human intelligence topic is being taken seriously? I mean, how many in the relic hominoid community are open to the possibility that Bigfoot have extraterrestrial origins? And uh, what do you feel about all of that?
0: Well, again, I see no direct links. There are some researchers who are, have uh, entertained that possibility. Uh, I think that Stan Gordon, the researcher uh, based out of Pennsylvania, probably best known for his documentation of the famous Kexburg incident, but he's documented some sightings that, you know, seem to l- link UFO sightings that uh, apparently coincided with or nearly coincided with Sasquatch sightings. You know, um, for me, and I, uh, couple of years ago, had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum at length about all of this. And the way that he kind of concluded the conversation was the, you know, the paranormal theories that are being associated with Sasquatch don't necessarily help us establish the topic in terms of being a credible biological issue that scientists might be compelled to study. Um, so in my opinion, uh, I think that the best way to approach Sasquatch is to treat it like what it seems to be what it seems to represent is a primate, a primate that is more like humans than any other primate known to exist, but which is not terribly different from them in its behaviors. Um, not incredibly different from us in a lot of ways in terms of the described behaviors by those who have seen it. Um, to go any further than that, I mean, for all we know, Sasquatch very well may have unique capabilities or there may be more explicit you know, associations with other kinds of phenomena, but, but I don't see any, any compelling reason presently to link them. Now, some would say, ah, but you haven't read, you know, the, the research of this guy or that guy, and you haven't considered how weird it is. And at the end of the day, you know, we haven't found a body yet. So if these things were out there and they were just animals, we should have a body, you know, there's an argument there, certainly. But again, the problem I have with that argument, Christina, is it, it becomes more difficult when we take something that is unknown, okay, unexplained phenomena, and we try to use other unexplained phenomena to explain the phenomena. You know, two negatives don't equal a positive. And in my mind, to say, well, Sasquatch is easily explainable. They're UFOs. Well, to that, I would say, okay, well, what are UFOs? Well, they're aliens. And I'd say, well, where's your proof? Well, we know it's not ours. There you go. Well, I'm sorry, but The fact that they don't appear to be ours is not in and of itself proof of extraterrestrials. And you see, there's a lot of strange kind of circular logic that people employ when it comes to the study of all these sorts of things. Now, there are also those skeptics out there. And I've got a lot of friends who are great skeptics. And so, you know, let me just be clear here. I'm not bad mouthing the skeptics. I count myself among their ranks. I'm very skeptically inclined myself. But there have been some skeptics uh, over the years who have acted as though. Me or you or anyone who even seriously tries to discuss these topics is thereby actually doing harm by giving even some amount, some measure of credence to the possibility. That is the most anti scientific idea I could imagine. It's one thing if you say, I know what they are, I believe in them, I've seen them, and they come in my bedroom at night and talk to me. Yeah, okay, that's an extraordinary claim. But to simply have a discussion about Sasquatch or UAP or anything else for that matter that is deemed fringe, to simply have a conversation about it, I guess there's a right and a wrong way to go about it. But it's not inherently wrong just to discuss these things. And anyone who would try to make that sort of association, well, he talks about weird stuff, so he must be crazy. That's an unscientific attitude. And frankly, I take issue with it.
1: I definitely love the fact that not only do you have a critical mind in the way you understand things, but also you play the devil's advocate. And I think that's a really rare characteristic that people have is that you don't you don't really agree with yourself, but you don't also disagree and you go both ways. And I think that is so valuable in this field and in every possible field that there is. So I want to say thank you for that.
0: Well, thank you. And thank you for the intelligent questions you always ask. And, you know, again, When we're talking about having these conversations, you know, and, you know, I think this sincerely because I tell you this in private, too. But again, conversations like the ones that you host right here on Shifting the Paradigm and any other program that you're producing, you know, you're raising the bar on the discussion by having intelligent guests, you know, asking great questions, you know, having, you know, really thoughtful ideas of your own that you inject into this dialogue, And keeping people interested, keeping people talking, keeping people asking the right kind of questions rather than, you know, spinning off into speculative realms of nonsense. So, again, and I don't mean that in any way as an attack against anyone who has beliefs of their own. I mean, if anything, I hope that people who listen to a show like this will recognize me as being their advocate, much as you are, in the sense that I'm trying to have these conversations. And if you disagree with me or you disagree with Christina, don't remember, or I'm sorry, don't forget that It's okay to disagree, but, but what we're trying to do is take these topics that we all are interested in and make sure that they have a, a home where they can be discussed seriously. A home where they can be discussed in ways that really are furthering our knowledge about them. But knowledge... Again, really relies on a number of things, including evidence, evidence evidence-based approaches toward, you know, trying to study them and scientific principles applied toward this dialogue. So, again, you know, we could go on down the list, but really, I think we've kind of defined what we're trying to do here. And I think that that hopefully will be recognized by all as being in the furtherance of this dialogue.
1: It is. And that's why you have your own podcast as well. So you can talk about this in depth. And you know, when (laughs) I'm just really happy that you're here, I'll just put it like that. So (laughs) John has another super chat, as always. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone. We have two going for us. One of them is You know, it would be different if it was just one or two direct non-human events. But obviously, with millions of non-humans and aliens, UFO sightings everywhere by all types of people over eons, non-humans have to be here.
0: Thoughts? That's an interesting perspective. You know, the human tendency to ascribe agency to various phenomena throughout time is something we've seen for a long time. Again, in antiquity, we might have seen gods or we might have seen angels or we might have seen demons or we might have seen nature spirits or elementals you know or ghosts of our ancestors any number of different things can be um the 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 interpretive you know motif through which we kind of filter things that we see and experience um i don't think it's necessarily wrong to look at it in those terms but uh, but again to conclude from the collective human experience and our belief in non-human intelligence throughout time, that therefore that is evidence of them, you know, I might draw a line there. um, But I would say that, for instance, going back to antiquity and looking at um, instances of unusual occurrences, project, you know, prodigious occurrences, um, you know, uh, fantastic events in the skies and things like this. um, There have been a number of researchers who over the years have, you know, kind of mined reports from ancient history and even more recent history the last few centuries looking for what we might find you know or call today in in the modern parlance ufos or uap i think that there's a pretty good case to be made there and so yes if indeed some phenomena from the ancient past um do end up i don't know that there's any really any real way that we'll ever be able to confirm that uh you know necessarily but but if indeed they do represent what we in the future maybe define and 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 study and, and eventually resolve to be Uap and they for instance are extraterrestrial visitors yeah we might say that yeah throughout time there's a pretty good case that that we can look back in hindsight and say yeah well people we, we know what these things are now throughout time people seem to have seen these things too they seem to have been visiting for a long time and yeah it seems that indeed they didn't know what they were at the time they had different names for them but these turn out to be non-human intelligences if If, and here's the caveat, that's what UAP or UFOs were to turn out to be today, but we don't really yet have enough evidence to support that conclusion. Now, if I had to tell you what I guess, I certainly have entertained that idea. Uh, I certainly have entertained that idea like anybody else that, you know, again, this doesn't appear to be a technology that we recognize easily here on earth. And we can't attribute that to any nation or any, you know, anybody, let alone our own technologies. Um, And going all the way back to the assessments by Project Sign under the U.S. Air Force as early as 1948, Um, it was destroyed. But there was a document that's colloquially known today as the uh, estimate of the situation. And it apparently said, look, we we can't identify this technology and whatever these things are. We don't even think the Soviets have this, let alone us. So we're open to the possibility it could be extraterrestrial. That's why that that document and all copies of it were reportedly destroyed because top brass in Washington hated that. They were like, don't tell me aliens. Get back out there and get back to work, you know. But it's not a new idea. And there's a reason why that idea has persisted. I don't say that that's proof of aliens, but I am saying that, again, I think that as time goes on and that idea remains relevant in the dialogue of what UAP may represent, that should say something. Right. That should speak to something in terms of how long lasting that that interpretation of the phenomena has been with us.
1: I would hope so. But as we know, you know, our opinions and our bias definitely skew our viewpoints on any data that we may see. Even if even if the facts are laid out, people are going to be like, no, it's still wrong. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yet again very well said christina (laughs)
1: Um, matt scott has a comment thank you so much and it says these creatures are not of the intelligent of animals it would be much more believable than they are as smart or smarter than us and that's a really interesting statement there are people that have encountered these bigfoot or sasquatch or yeti whatever you like to call them they're all rather similar that they can that they seem intelligent like as if they can sense people coming before they come and and there's even been certain cases where there have been message relayed telepathically and um i mean overall i i find this topic so fascinating there are so many facets to the bigfoot story that it is very possible that they could possibly be smarter than us just based off of the Stories that people have experienced. Now, again, we don't have them in a lab, at least to our knowledge, so we can't really test their IQ or anything, but merely just based off the stories, uh, it's a really interesting point. What do oh, you think about that, Micah?
0: Certainly, again, to uh, Matt Frost's, uh, you know, perspective there about the intelligence of these creatures, you know, I would say maybe. As opposed to being more intelligent than humans, maybe they have a different kind of intelligence. Maybe their variety of intelligence is highly specialized in different ways. You know, for instance, let me give you a good example uh, looking at archaeology again of a great mystery of ancient time. And that is, of course, the fabled uh, wonders of the world that they are, the, the pyramids of Giza. It's easy to see why ancient astronaut theorists, for instance, would look at these things and say, how could anybody four and a half thousand years ago build monumental structures like this? What technology did they have comparable to what we used to build buildings today that could achieve this? How in the world did they, they do that? Well, maybe they didn't. Maybe they had some help to which I would say, okay." aliens. Well, then why do aliens come down to earth and comparable to their technological capabilities? Why do they come down here and build great big mud pies in the middle of the desert? You know, Um, I think really a better way of approaching this is saying that the ancient humans who built the pyramids and unequivocally, I am of mind to say that humans built them. And in fact, I think that there's plenty of archaeological evidence that supports that. But rather than having Anti-gravity or some sort of incredible technology. They had a very specialized technology. They had a very specialized way of thinking. You know, you want to understand how they built the pyramids. The first question to ask is why would they build the pyramids? And if you think about their culture and their, you know, their religion and their their ideas and their attitudes and their society, it becomes easier to understand how and why the great trouble would be, have been gone to. Graham Hancock so often asks in his writings. You know, why go to all the trouble? Well, again, that's an easy question to ask, especially from a modern perspective, but putting ourselves in their shoes, it becomes more difficult. You know, as far as what, um, you know, Matt was talking about, is Sasquatch more intelligent than us? I don't know that we would say more intelligent, but I would say that very much like we could say of different cultures, you know, around the world and also different kinds of species around the world, animals, animal life, including humans are capable of incredible things relative to what they need to survive, if we think about what my colleague Matt Pruitt has said about how quickly a large carnivore can move through the brush, if that ensures a, a clean, quick kill and it gets to have dinner, you know, that seems almost magical to us. And there's no technology involved. You know, it's an adaptation and it's an animal that has evolved to be able to move very stealthily, very quickly, It may only be able to do that, you know, within certain parameters. But within those parameters, what it can do, it does with deadly force, unlike any other animal in existence. You know, it would be hard to imagine a creature as large as Sasquatch is said to be able also to evade humans so well, to move silently through the forest, you know, to do some of the things that they seem to do. But again, one might call that intelligence. One one might also call that adaptation. And one might also view that in terms of it being very specific to that animal, which to me, again, if we remove our human perspective long enough to say, well, if they're not like us, then we shouldn't presume that they would act and function like we do. It, it maybe is a little less mystery, mysterious. But then again, it's hard to say that there's anything less mysterious about Sasquatch. I mean, if they exist, that's going to be an incredible discovery, and dare I say one of the most significant, really, in, in the history of human science and, and thought.
1: When you put it like that, it definitely sounds a lot more rational. And also something that I've never even thought about. So having you on, I think, is changing a lot of our minds, not just mine on this. <laughs> I would quickly like to say thank you to Laura for the super sticker. Thank you. And I just have one more question for you here today. And that is so we touched on Missing 411 and the work of David Politis, you know, and there are so many mysterious cases of, of vanishings which have characteristics that repeatedly occur, such as people last being seen in a granite field or bodies being discovered in granite fields with no outward signs of cause of death. And then those of like tiny infants going missing and being found bewildered 20 miles away with no injuries just within a day or two later, which is impossible for them to travel at such a distance. What do you think is going on with this?
0: Again, I guess we should be careful about uh, drawing correlations, in one instance, you know, there may be an explanatory mechanism that's very different from what occurs in another. Again, having read uh, some of Mr. Re- uh research and, uh, you know, owning a couple of those books myself, some of those cases are not easy to explain. I think that's the main point that David's trying to get across with his research is that, guys, in some instances, it's not so simple as somebody just vanishing. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, some of the cases that he's investigated, um, I have personally investigated uh, and spent a lot of time with. Uh, the Dennis Lloyd Martin case was a cornerstone for David's research. And um, unlike a lot of other researchers, you know, to his credit, David spoke to uh, the late Mr. William Martin, the father of the missing boy. Uh, David also spoke to a number of other family members and, you know, has really tirelessly worked that case. Um and so, you know, rightly, uh, I, when he gave his presentation at the Great Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Conference back in the summer, um, talking about that case, you know, uh, there's an air of, you know, from David, like he he seems very protective of the case, because I do think that a few people have attacked him and things like this on podcasts and have, you know, taken issue with his perspectives on the case. Um, you know, having looked at the case myself, the only place where I would maybe differ slightly uh, is that, you know, David notes as was reported in the newspapers at the time. Uh, and, and this is absolutely true that there was a sighting of a man near the Cades Cove uh, area by a uh, Mr. Harold Key at the time. Um, I think that especially since David's books have come out, people have really kind of honed in on that aspect of the case and tried to say, well, it must've been a Sasquatch, which David has never said. David has never never said that. Um, Harold Key was interviewed uh, right before his death by a colleague of mine named Mike Bouchard, who is a police officer, um, up in the Northeastern United States. And Harold Key said, Oh no, it definitely wasn't a Sasquatch. It was a man as was reported at the time. Uh, and he, I think was like, you know, wearing a rough looking kind of white t-shirt and stuff. And he ran out of the woods, jumped into a car and spun gravel as he left. Um, so again, that seems to be the real story. Um, the problem of course is that a lot of very imaginative people look at stories like this and they take things out of context and they kind of add layers of mythology and things onto the, what again was intended always to be very factual, kind of you know bland, serious reporting that guys like David Politis and others have tried to present on this case, uh, without making extraordinary claims. Um, and I know that for my own part, uh, the Dennis Martin case is heartbreaking because the young boy vanished within feet of his father and his grandfather. There was it was the largest search effort by the National Park Service at that time. He was never found. I have filed FOIAs with every agency that I could find had been involved with the case. And I've been there, unlike most researchers who've written about it. I've been to the location where he vanished. Um, I filmed and, and took photographs there. I've done everything I could, and I don't think we'll ever resolve that case. And troubling... Uh, As it is, uh, after so many years, more than 50 years, the FBI does have a fairly lengthy file about the the, the boy's disappearance, which it will not release. Uh, McMillan and I have tried to make some inroads to try and get that that file released um, through FOIA. But uh, for whatever reason, the FBI still won't release it. And I suspect I know why, but I don't think it's a huge mystery. I think it's because there's so much information and there are still living family members of the missing boy who, after all this time, it's still painful for them. So again, you know, with respect to David and other people who have done so much research into that case, some of these cases are not easily explained. What happened to that child? How did David run up the trail and just just vanish into thin air? And they didn't find a blood trail. They didn't find a shoe, nothing. There was literally nothing ever found about that boy. And there are some anecdotal claims of how many years later, remains that may have belonged to a small child being found a a fair distance away. But then the question comes up of how did the boy get down there? What happened? Now, again, back to your main point, a lot of these cases involve infants or small children that seem to travel great distances. And in some cases, unlike poor little Dennis, you know, and it breaks my heart still talking about that case, but some of those children do turn up, but how did they travel that distance? They couldn't have made that, that trek on their own. And some of those same problems arise in the Dennis Martin case where people say, well, if the body turned up in this location, as was described by some illegal ginseng hunters in the late 70s or early 80s, Dennis must have wandered down there. I'm like, look, I've been there. Okay, I've been there. A child, five and a half, six years old, doesn't wander for miles over rugged terrain through thick brush like that. And not to say that they necessarily couldn't, but it would be a monumental feat for that child. So There are aspects of a lot of these cases that remain unresolved, aren't easily explained. I can't say that there is a distinctive singular phenomena that unites all those cases. In fact, I won't say that. But I will say that on a case-for-case basis, there are aspects of these, as David and others have pointed out, that aren't easily explainable. And again, that's why so many of us have poured time into these cases trying to understand what's actually going on and what it all means. Um, And some of these cases, we may never know the circumstances that led to these disappearances.
1: Micah, that is it for today's show. I want to say thank you so much for being here. Um, can you tell people who's going to be the next guest on your Micah Hanks podcast? Oh, that's a
0: good question. actually to tell you the truth. I think that the next episode, if, if all goes according to plan, I'm going to try and provide a full report on my uh, investigations into mysterious phenomena in the Chapadas dos Villaderos in uh, Brazil. Uh, that is really interesting, but there's going to be a lot of work getting that together. Uh, and in the weeks ahead, uh, I've reached out to a few other guests, but since none of them have confirmed at the moment, I think I'll have to keep it on the DL as to who to expect. But I can guarantee you one thing. If you listen to the Micah Hanks program, it's always going to be a fun time, a riveting conversation, and some thought-provoking dialogue.
1: Oh my gosh. All the time. Every single time. Can't go wrong with watching or listening to his podcast. So I want to say thank you to everyone that has been here. Thank you for all the moderators for all the great work you guys do. Thank you to everyone who has donated to the channel with awesome and incredibly interesting super chat questions and thank you to all of my Patreon supporters who th- this show would not be possible without you guys. As for my Patreon supporters, Mike and I will be doing an extra 15 minutes of Q&A which will be posted on later and coming up soon a new show on Fridays which will panel guests for a chat show called strange paradigms giving you yes you (laughs) a chance to to come on the show so it's gonna be open panel for anyone to show up so i'll release more information soon about the show on the website at paradigmshifts.blog i want to say thank you to everyone once again have a great night be safe and remember keep your eyes on the skies